Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Our guest today is Alicia Wood. Alicia is based in Atlanta. She works with the Lighten Group, which is a group that uh, is dealing with apologetics or the defense of the Christian faith. She has a degree in criminal justice and sociology as well as a master's degree in social justice. She is an aficionado and a fan of hockey and up until recent years being moved to Atlanta, used to play hockey a lot, but in Atlanta all their hockey places suck, so she doesn't do that for the most part. She's also a violinist who on any given Sunday when she's not out speaking to the church is playing in worship at her home church. She has been a good friend for many of us here for many years. She is a brilliant uh, um, intellectual as well as deeply committed in understanding of the scriptures and of the faith. I'm going to ask would you please warmly welcome my friend Alicia Wood. Oh, good morning. First of all, thank you again to the worship team. Man, I just really love um, worship this morning. And it is a joy to actually participate in worship. As Randy said, usually I'm playing at my church uh, in the orchestra there on Sunday morning. So it's just nice to be able to be here and just participate in worship with you all. So many familiar faces. So good to see so many of you again, of course, and people that I see regularly every year. Uh, Just happy to be back with this uh, church that isn't just a church, but it's become really family and friends to me because I've been here so many times. So just really good morning to you all, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak before you again today. Uh, additionally, thank you, Randy. Really just appreciate the fact that you give me the opportunity to come and minister to people that you love. Um, I think any of us would want to protect our children uh, from whoever's going to speak into their lives, and you could imagine it is the same thing on a pastoral level. So thank you always so much for for giving me another opportunity to come and be before you. I'm going to speak to you today on this topic of deconstruction. And essentially what deconstruction is, is it's when people say, you know what, I had this belief in Christianity, but you know, I don't think I fully believe it anymore. Maybe they felt like they were really confident in it at one point in their life. Maybe they felt like um, it was something that they were uh, fully convinced of, but now they're like, I'm not sure about it. Or maybe they feel like, I just don't believe it's true at all. And so they kind of take their faith and deconstruct it and say, I don't believe this anymore, or I'm strongly feeling like, you know what? I'm leaning towards the fact that this isn't true. And this isn't something, friends, that just happens to people that are around us. This happens even within here and actually even within my life, as I will share a story with you in just a few minutes. But first, I want to walk with you through a passage in John chapter 11. And many of you are familiar with the story of Lazarus. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You're familiar with that. And when he was sick, uh, his two sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus that, look, he's sick. Will you please come and heal him? 
Um, Jesus waits two days to stay where he is two more days before he goes and to, to Judea to help Lazarus. And so by going to Judea, this is going to put Jesus' life in jeopardy. And the disciples, of course, are willing to waste no time in reminding him, look, if you go back to Judea, your life is going to be at risk. So let's go ahead and pick up John chapter 11, starting at verse 8 right now. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. What a profound statement by Thomas. Let us also go that we may die with him. In other words, Thomas is like, look, this Jesus guy, he seems to think he knows what he's doing. We're still trying to figure him out. But we know that if he goes back there, not only is his life going to be at risk, but our lives are going to be at risk as well. So let's prepare ourselves because we might end up dying with him. It's a very strong statement by this young follower of Jesus. So convinced, or at least in moving in that direction of being convinced, maybe still trying to figure it out, but feeling like, okay, I'm fairly certain that he's saying, look, I'm willing to die for who this Jesus is. I grew up in a Christian home. It's probably going to be a very similar story to maybe some of the people in here. I went to school, went to uh, church on Sunday mornings and Sunday school, which was super formative for my life. Went to church, uh, youth group and, and the tweens group, although we didn't call them tweens because we didn't have cool names like that back then. Um, went to the tweens ministry before I went to the youth group and went to church on Sunday night. And I grew up at a Pentecostal church, right? Which basically meant that we danced our way through worship. That's basically what it meant. And so there was one time, actually, it was a Sunday night service and we just had our normal service we get home, and somebody's calling just to say, hey, I want to make sure you guys are okay. I'm like, well, yeah, we're fine. I'm like, okay, well, because of the earthquake, we want to make sure that nothing happened. And we're like, what earthquake? Apparently, friends, while we were at church, there was an earthquake, and we didn't even feel it. <laughs> that is a kind of church, let me tell you. Now you see why I appreciate the worship team. I was like, yes, bring on the worship, you know? So all that to say... Had a good experience, grew up reading our daily breads. How many remember our daily breads? Right, super, super good. So read all those, had a grandmother who loved the Lord with all her heart. It was a major influence in my life. And so everything was good. And then I get to college. And the interesting thing is I went to a Christian college. And I was in a Bible class at this Christian college because you had to take a New Testament and an Old Testament course. So I was at this Christian college in a Bible class by, with the professor who was a, an amazing man of God, who actually ended up becoming one of the most influential people in my life, 
in this Bible class. And he began to talk about how the Bible was formed. And he began to talk about how there were certain letters that were also written, but they weren't included in the Bible. And I'm like, what? Wait, you mean there's maybe other ones out there? And I just never heard that before. But I also never thought about this idea that the Bible just plopped out of the sky and landed in front of me either. So I just had never really thought about how the Bible came together. Like, how really did we get these things? And so I just began to think through. And as he was talking, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I can't trust this Bible. If I can't trust this Bible, then I can't trust this Jesus. If I can't trust this Jesus, I can't trust this Christianity. And that 150 minutes of class or hour and 20 minutes, however long that class was, that 50 to 120 minutes of class led me to walk out of that class that day saying there is no God. After 18, 19 years of belief. And I remember walking back to my dorm and I was just looking at like the grass and the squirrels play and looking at the trees and just thinking, wow, this is it. Like, there's nothing bigger. There's nothing greater. And then I, I would look at the sky, and it was like, you, you know, you don't realize this, but in Christianity, you have this idea of things being bigger, of greater, of hope. In other words, there's like, there's like bigger things than just this world. And when you don't believe in God anymore, everything shrinks. And I felt like my whole world shrunk. I'm like, this is it. It's just the sky. And I really struggled because I didn't know what to do, with, do about that. Nobody had ever told me, hey, Alicia, you might doubt at one point in your life. That was never a conversation we had. So I thought, oh, my goodness, what have I done? Who am I becoming? Oh, and I could not, in my mind, tell a soul. There's no way. What would my friends think of me? Remember, I'm the person that, I'm in the gospel choir. And people come to me because they want prayer. And they say, Lisa, you're so strong and, and all these things. So we want you to pray for us. And what am I going to tell them now? So I didn't tell anybody. And I kept it quiet. And I went about my normal school routine, sang the songs, and was like, I don't even know what to think anymore. This idea of questioning, of wondering, of walking away from what you believe in is not new. It is something that people in here may have gone through or will go through. It's something I went through. Spoiler alert, I became Christian again, just so you know. In case you're wondering who Randy brings up here, okay, just so you know, this is the end of the story ends there, okay? I believe. But I didn't know at that time that people went through these Moments. Some of them come back to belief. Some of them never do. But this isn't new to me. In fact, it's happening really a very much more. I say much more and more common. I guess in in maybe the popular, well-known Christian world, where people are making posts and writing books about reasons why they walked away from Christianity. So. Let me read you some of them. Marty Sampson, who was a former worship leader at Hillsong Music, recently posted about his challenges with Christianity. Now, this is, a sam this is what his actual Instagram post was. It's way too small for you to read, so I'm going to read it for you. I just wanted you to see what the actual post was. And this is what he says. Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith. And it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. 
Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. Got so much more to say, but for me, I keep it real. Unfollow if you want. I've never been about living my life for others. All I know is what's true to me right now, and Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I could go on, but I won't. Love and forgive, absolutely. Be kind, absolutely. Be generous and do good to others, absolutely. Some things are good no matter what you believe. Let the rain fall. The sun will come up tomorrow. Now, if some of you are in the probably like mid-30s to late-40s, you may have um, grown up in an era where we were really encouraged to not, and I think there's, I still actually think there's some validity to this, to not just casually date people, but to actually wait for the one that God really has for you and um, the one that he's, he's really like, that he's going to bring into your pathway in a sense. So this idea of not just casual dating, but more courtship. And I think there is some truth to that still. We don't want us to be casually dating people that there's just no possibility or chance of or just because there's an emotional connection there. But for many people, this became a very troubling thing. And one person in particular, Joshua Harris, was an author in, during that time frame. And he wrote this book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, where he talks about how he met his wife and, and the reasons. Are, actually, I think in this one, he talks about more so the reasons why he holds the position he does on casual dating. In the next one, when Boy, Boy Meets Girl, I believe it's called, he talks about, I think, his relationship and how he met his wife. And so many people were, in, were into this uh, movement and many people really had a hard time with it. It worked for some. It really did. Worked really well for some. But from some other people, they actually needed, you know some people have to like learn through their mistakes? Some of those people really needed to have certain dating relationships. They realized, okay, this is not a good idea. This was not a wise decision. Now I know what I should be looking for, that kind of thing. And so several people really struggled. And over the years, Joshua Harris kind of became the, the poster boy for this movement, which I think was a bit unfair, to be honest, because this was a church teaching I had. This wasn't a Joshua Harris teaching I had. Um, but either way, he became the poster boy for it. And over the years, people started writing him letters saying, you've ruined my life and you caused all these problems for me. And so he would just feel so bad about it. He eventually became a pastor and pastored a church. And uh, after getting so many letters and emails, he actually finally just said, you know what, I take back the teaching of the book and I want the book pulled from the shelves. And so they did. Well, a few years ago, he continued preaching, but a few years ago, he took some time to write on Instagram about, sadly, the separation from his wife. And not long after he wrote about that, he wrote a post explaining further what led to his divorce. Once again, this is way too small for you to read, so I will read it for you. But this is what his Instagram post said. He said, my heart is full of gratitude. I wish you could see all the messages people sent me after the announcement of my divorce. Their expressions of love, though they're saddened or even strongly disapprove of the decision. I'm learning that no group has the market cornered on grace. This week, I've received grace from Christians, atheists, evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, straight people, LGBTQ people, and everyone in between. 
Of course, there have also been strong words of rebuke from religious people. While not always pleasant, I know they're seeking to love me. There have also been spiteful, hateful comments that angered and hurt me. The information that was left out of our announcement is that I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I'm not a Christian. Many people tell me that there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Martin Luther said that the entire life of believers should be repentance. There's beauty in that sentiment, regardless of your view of God. I've lived in repentance for the past several years, repenting of my self-righteousness, my fear-based approach to life, the teaching of my books, my views of women in the church, and my approach to parenting, to name a few. But I specifically want to add to this list now. To the LGBTQ plus community, I want to say that I'm sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you in your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. To my Christian friends, I'm grateful for your prayers. Don't take it personally if I don't immediately return phone calls. I can't join in your mourning. I don't view this moment negatively. I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. I believe with my sister Julian that all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. As you can imagine, these posts really upset a lot of people. And one of those people, surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, was me. Because in Mar with Marty Sampson, some of the things that he says, for example, how many preachers fall, nobody talks about it. How many miracles happen, nobody talks about it. The Bible's full of contradiction, no one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send four billion people? First of all, I don't even know where he got four billion from. Like, that's not anywhere in the Bible. But he got four billion people to hell, basically, and nobody talks about it. And I'm kind of like, my friend, I have an entire career of talking about it. There are books that are written. There are philosophers. There are theologians. There are so many people that are talking about these things that you list. People are talking about it. How did you miss that? How have you missed the tons of YouTube videos, the websites, the articles? In fact, Marty, let me help you out a bit and give you some more. Because you really didn't even do it justice. There's so many more issues you could have raised with Christianity. So let me help you out and give you some. Because these are some of the ones that I deal with on a regular basis. So yes, we do have questions. We do have things that we are trying to, to sort through. But none of these things are new. And this is the thing that the person who deconstructs needs to understand. The very idea of deconstruction means is implying that something is constructed, it is taken apart, it's deconstructed, and so now you just have a bunch of things left over. So I think of it in terms of a puzzle. You have a puzzle, it's all put together, every piece fits right where it goes. When you deconstruct, you take out the pieces of the puzzle, put them all, separate them, and you have a thousand pieces in front of you. Great. My next question, though, is now that you've deconstructed the puzzle, what now will you do with the pieces? Because you can't leave the puzzle undone. The whole point is that it's supposed to fit together. You can't leave it deconstructed. And so many people do this. They say, you know what? I don't believe in Christianity anymore. 
I don't think this is true, so I'm just going to be an atheist. The same thing I did. And we default to atheism. We default as if this is just the, the position of those who just reject Christianity. That's wrong. Because atheism also has its pieces. And it needs to put the pieces together. And what is it able to form? Because remember, these pieces are the answer to suffering. These pieces are, is there meaning to life? These pieces are, what do we do with this Bible that is so historically accurate? These pieces are, what do we do with Jesus? And the fact that today is August 14th or whatever it is, is because this man walked the earth. The fact that your birthday is the day that it is, is because he walked the earth. So your pieces are in front of you. What now will you do with them? What really is right and wrong? What are you going to do with that piece? What really is the value of human life? What are you going to do with that piece? Because you now have to reconstruct into a new puzzle. And you don't get to cheat and leave some of the pieces out. So whatever you reconstruct has to have all of the pieces used into your new construction. And what so many people do is they deconstruct, take that puzzle apart, leave them there, and they say, oh, well, here I am. I've walked away from that. I don't really believe this. But really, you have to have evidence for your atheism that you now landed in that that's true. You need to have evidence that your Islam, maybe, that you landed in is true. You need to have evidence that your Hinduism that you now landed in is true. In other words, you can't just decide without reconstructing something. When you walk away from a particular belief, friends, all that changes are your answers. But the questions are still there. The meaning of life, how do we live, all that changes is now how you answer each one of those. So you can't live in no man's land. You need to use all the pieces. In John chapter 6, I know Abdu spoke about this last week, so I won't really go into it. But Jesus called out some of the many disciples that were following him, telling them that he knows that some of them don't believe. And as a result, many of them walk away. And now he's left with the 12. And he turns to those 12 and says, do you want to leave too? To which Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So I ask the person who deconstructs, to where will you now go? What will you now do with the pieces that are in front of you? I've asked atheists after atheists after atheists for evidence for their belief, and they do not give me any. What they do is give me reasons why they reject Christianity. That's fine. You can reject Christianity, but it doesn't mean automatically atheism is true. If Christianity is proven false tomorrow, we find Jesus' body somewhere in a grave, and we can prove it's Jesus' body, that just means that Christianity isn't true. It doesn't mean atheism automatically is. It could be Hinduism. It could be Jehovah's Witness. It could be a whole range of things. So what will you go to? And whatever you go to, you need to know is true because what you believe affects your actions, your thoughts, your words, how you treat people, how you see people, how you engage with people, who you choose to be friends with, who you choose to not be friends with. What you believe in affects everything about how you live your life. So you cannot afford to leave the pieces in shambles. And so what oftentimes a lot of people do is they'll say, well, this is a thousand-piece puzzle. I have no idea how to put this together, so I'm going to just put 300 together because I can do that, and that'll be my view. And they'll ignore the other 700 that they didn't fit back together. So deconstruction is ultimately the final state of somebody who's wrestled with doubt when they say, 
I don't believe. I've walked away. Now, once again, I mean, I'd be a fool to think that it was just Joshua Harris and Marty Sampson. There's so many other people that have struggled and, and walked away. People, I'm sure, in this room, people like me that really struggled. And so they're wondering what to do about it. And see, for somebody like me, when that moment happened, when I was in the college, and I remember thinking, okay, so now there's no God, but here's the problem. There were prayers that I uttered that nobody knew about that he answered. So something was listening to you, Alicia. You say it's not Christianity, that's fine, but something heard you. A few months, or excuse me, actually about a year or so before I went to college, I actually moved into an apartment with a friend. I actually started my undergrad in January as opposed to August, uh, as most colleges start. So I started a semester late. And I moved into an apartment with a friend. And um, young 18-year-old, just graduated high school, and she was a youth leader at my church. And the rent was $445. So, which, considering the rents today is like a steal. Um, and so I had to pay her the $445 for like the first month or security, however that went at the time. So I was in the babysitting a lot, doing a lot of babysitting in the kind of the neighborhood with a bunch of different kids. So I had saved up my money and I did like 500 bucks and, or something like that. So I'm like, great, I'll be fine. Well, the day of me coming to youth group, of me giving her the money at youth group later on that night, I'm counting the money and I'm $30 short. And I'm like, what happened? So I'm looking like behind the dresser, I'm looking all around, like where is this money? How did I end up short all of a sudden? And so I go to church, and I'm like, hi, I'm $30 short. Way to be on your first rent pay, Melicia. Way to adult. You know, I'm $30 short here. And she was really kind. She goes, okay. And I said, but I'm babysitting this weekend. I'll get you the other $30, and you'll have it this weekend. So I gave it to her, and I'm just kind of like, Lord, I don't understand. Like, I'm trying to serve you, and I'm trying to please you, and it just seems like everything is just so chaotic. And we have worship service, and we're singing and doing our thing, and this guy comes up to me. Now, this guy was a, a Christian rapper. He and his wife, they were dating at the time, and his high school sweetheart, she got pregnant in high school uh, before they were Christians. They ended up getting married later on, finished their degrees, their high school degrees, and, um, and now she's pregnant with a second, and now they're believers, and they're just amazing people. But when you go to their house and open up their cupboard, like there's literally nothing in there because they are dirt poor. And they have a second child on the way. So he comes up to me, knows nothing of my situation. And I'm saying, they're and all of a sudden he comes up to me and he's like, um, well, I don't know, but, but God is saying, and I don't really understand it, but I gotta be obedient. And he's telling me to do this and he's doing all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And he opens up his wallet and he gives me $20. Now, I'd like to tell you guys that in this moment, I was just holier than thou, Alicia, and the sky's open, and I could see Jesus' face, and I was like, God, you provide for all my needs. But actually, my response was, okay, God, where's the other 10? <laughs> because the reality for me, Miss Practical, was I'm still short, God. What good did that do? So I'm like, so he gives me the $20. You already feel bad taking $20 from this man because you know he's got nothing a pregnant wife and like a two-year-old or three-year-old, however old he was at the time. And so he gives me the money and he like zips off. And I'm like, okay, well, that was interesting. So now all night long, I'm looking on the floor. I'm waiting for somebody else to come up to me. <laughs> Nothing, nobody else. I give my friend the $20. I'm like, now I only owe you 10. I'll get it to you. And I like go home and I'm like, this is the most bizarre thing, God. 
Like, I didn't, I'm sure my rent money. Like, he didn't even know that I needed it. Yeah, he gave me the 20 bucks. Like, I just couldn't even figure out how to put the whole thing together. So that night, I got this dating myself, VHS, uh, playing Fred Hammond. I was this gospel artist playing in, in, in my, like, little TV VHS combo thing. Some of you remember those in my room. And it's, like, midnight, 1230, I'm packing up my room. And as I pick up this one box as I'm packing things, underneath it is a $10 bill. Okay, so now I'm freaked out. And so now I, I don't even touch it. Like, I just sit down on my bed. And I'm like, okay, God. So when I began to doubt, I was like, okay, how do you now explain that? Remember, the questions are always there. I gave the answer as the Christian God. But if I say that's not true, I got to give another answer. You still have to answer the questions. And so that for me was really problematic. Like, what do I then say to that if I say there is no God? And so I want to give you guys some advice because I think, you know, people like you and me who maybe go through these kind of things, I don't want you to, to make some of the mistakes that I did. Like, number one, I panicked. Maybe if somebody comes to you and says that they're questioning, they're doubting, don't panic. Don't freak out. It's really hard if you're a mom and it's your child. But don't freak out. Don't panic. I freaked out and I panicked. But you don't need to do that. Don't feel shame and embarrassment like, oh my goodness, God hates me and he thinks I'm horrible. Oh, and he's just looking at me, just eyes beaming. Just looking at me from heaven and just looking down. What a despicable disgrace. He really isn't doing all that, guys. Okay? He's not really doing all that. He's not that fickle. He's not that flaky that he's like, oh my goodness, one person doesn't believe. He's got it. He's okay. Okay, he's not thinking, but I thought like, oh my goodness, what an embarrassment, what a shame I am. Because nobody told me that this was normal. Nobody had told me that people doubt, that people question. We never talked about that. So I want you to know there is a normalcy to this. And I've talked to so many Christians who are super strong in their faith, and they'll talk to me about, yeah, I doubted in the past. Of course I did. So don't panic. Don't feel shame and embarrassment. God doesn't hate you um, for doubting. Don't get caught up in that. But also you want to tell somebody. Find somebody you can tell. I felt like there was no one I could tell, and so I didn't. Kept it to myself. Find somebody who you can tell, who is safe. We can use deconstruction to strengthen our understanding of Christianity and bring us to a deeper understanding that it's true. When the Bible says, love the Lord your God, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he wasn't misspeaking. He meant it. Loving with your mind is analyzing, looking at this, trying to understand this. This isn't all of it, because he said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Those are aspects in there too. So you don't want to be all heady. He isn't like a computer program to figure out. It's an actual personal being. So we want other aspects in there as well. But engaging with your mind is completely okay. That's what these questions are doing. I really want to know this is true. I'm stuck on this or I'm stuck on this. Guys, I still have questions and I've been dealing with this stuff for nine years. There are certain things we will never fully understand on this side of heaven. I'm going to tell you right now. There are just certain things that will not make sense to us. Why? Because as long as we are here, we actually, even though we don't feel like it, we're actually looking at life through a paper towel tube. And all we see is a tiny view on the other side. We don't even see that there's a bigger room or the big other things that are going on around it. We don't have the capabilities to because we are not all knowing. We can't see the future. 
So we're always limited. So the question of suffering, we will never, ever get to the point where we feel comfortable with the answer of that. That's why they've been asking this one for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Because the answer should hurt us. We see a child starving. When we see somebody hurting, those things should bother us. And we think when we ask the question over and over again to the, why God allows suffering, we're waiting for an answer that will make us feel less pain about the suffering. And I don't think we're supposed to, which is why we keep asking it, because nothing ever takes the pain away. I think we're supposed to be in pain with the suffering because it grieves God. And so there's certain questions we will not fully unpack here. And so you need to know that. You don't have the ability to understand everything. But just because a scientist looks at something and says, hmm, I don't understand these four things about it, it doesn't mean that science doesn't work. It doesn't mean that science doesn't exist. It just means they haven't found out the answer yet. And one of the things I had to help myself was, Alicia, you might not understand how this Bible thing came together, but that doesn't mean somebody else doesn't know the answer. It just means you don't know the answer. That's really all it means. You, at least you don't know it. Now, I understand the way the, the New Testament, when I say Bible, I'm speaking specifically New Testament, I understand much better the way New Testament came together now than I did then. And these other letters that people like to say, what about this one? What about this one? Well, one of the criteria for things being in the New Testament was that it had to be a letter written uh, by a follower of Jesus, like a disciple or an apostle or a friend of one. So someone who knew Jesus firsthand, so these are eyewitness stories, or a friend of one who could hear it. Let me tell you what Jesus did. Let me tell you what Jesus did, and they write it. Paul um, was a, someone who met Jesus face-to-face. -face. He wasn't a disciple, but met him face-to-face. -face. One exception is Hebrews. We're not fully uh, in agreement on that one. So we, the authorship was key. Well, when you look at some of these other texts that didn't make it in, it's because they were written like 100-plus years later. And that means, therefore, it couldn't have been written by an eyewitness or a friend of an eyewitness because they would have already been dead. That's why they're not in there. It was too long. It allows legend and story to develop. One of them talks about, I think it's the Gospel of Thomas that talks about how women need to become men in order to get to heaven. Gospel of Judas talks about how Judas actually did a great thing in turning Jesus in. I mean, when you start to look at them, the stuff that they say is so out of whack with what the other rest of the biblical text says. But I didn't understand it at the time. I just panicked. I understand it better now, and now it makes sense that they're not in there. So what brought me out of doubt was I had to think through these times in my life where I knew that there could have been no other answer than if God was there. So when you deconstruct, you can't stay in that state. You need to find another view that's coherent and consistent and you, that you know is true. Because when you leave Christianity, you are replacing the role or authority of God as a Christian. You're replacing that role in your life with something else. And that could be you. That could be another belief. It could be a non-belief, whatever, but something is replacing that role of authority. So in other words, you or that other belief becomes the moral authority in your life. You or that other belief determine the thoughts and actions and beliefs that you now hold. You or that other belief determine whether or not life has meaning and these kind of things. And guys, if you don't know that that other, be other belief is true, that is extremely problematic for us as a society. Back in, in uh, December 16th of last year, 2021, an article was published by the MIT Technology Review. Its title was, The Metaverse Has a Groping Problem Already. Basically, what it talked about 
is in certain video games, people take on certain characters. So women, you know, design a character of themselves, men design a character of themselves. And so you're playing in a video game, people you don't know, but there could be 30, 40 different avatars or whatever number of people globally. And, this is, and you guys are playing and doing different roles within the video game. But what they're finding, what the study found, is that women are actually being inappropriately touched in the video game. So the women avatars, the women figures, are met, the men avatars are coming over and touching them inappropriately in the video game. And the girl sitting at home on her couch or chair, wherever she is, can't do anything about it because it's in a video game. And she feels violated, and she's like, this is so inappropriate, but I can't stop him, and I'm just watching the video game. There's no buttons for me to do this with. So they actually had to start putting buttons in the video games that allow women to somehow defend themselves. But the men can do this because there's no accountability when you're sitting at home on your couch. No one's watching, so you think. I'm going to use another example, and it's going to talk about abortion, but I want you to know I'm not making a statement about abortion. I'm making a statement about something else, okay? So I'm not talking about whether or not abortion is right or wrong. I'm talking about, I want you to focus on another aspect of this. So in the American Journal, Journal of Medical Genetics, uh, it's back in 2011, did a study where they interviewed 284 people with Down syndrome, ages 12 and older. And they wanted to gather what information they could and share it with new and expectant parents of children with Down syndrome. So they asked these 284 people with Down syndrome a variety of questions. And I want to read you some of the results of the questions. Among those surveyed, 90, said nearly 99% of people with Down syndrome indicated they were happy with their lives. 97% liked who they are. 96% liked how they look. Nearly 99% of people with Down syndrome expressed love for their families. 97% liked their brothers and sisters. I won't even poll the audience on how many kids love their brothers and sisters here. But 97% of people with Down syndrome love their brothers and sisters. That is like every parent's dream to have 97% success rate with that. 86% of people with Down syndrome felt they could make friends easily. But they encouraged parents to love their babies with Down syndrome because their own lives were good. They further encourage healthcare professionals to value them, emphasizing they share similar hopes and dreams as people without Down syndrome. Overall, the overwhelming majority of people with Down syndrome surveyed indicate they live happy and fulfilling lives. When I read this, I was floored. 99% are happy with their lives. 96% like how they look. So I said, all right, well, I'm going to go look at the general population. So let me tell you some of these statistics from the general population now. According to the National Institutes of Health in 2020, an estimated 14.8 million U.S. adults 18 or older had at least one major depressive episode with severe impairment in the past year. That is 6% of all U.S. adults. An estimated 4.1 adolescents, so 12 to 17 years old, had at least one major depressive episode. That's 17% of adults, or young adults between 12 and 17. 17%. The prevalence of major depressive episode was higher amongst females, where 25% of that 17 were females, 
versus 9.2% males. Interestingly, the prevalence of a major depressive episode was highest among adolescents reporting two or more races. That was interesting to me. Similarly, according to Ipsos, which is a multinational market research and consulting firm, they did a study in 2018, and they chose to do a study on how we like how we look. Yes, exactly. I heard that groan. No surprise here, 79% of Americans report feeling unhappy with how their body looks at times. 79%. Compared to 96% of people with Down syndrome like how they look. 79% of us don't. 37% expressed dissatisfaction was most prevalent when looking in the mirror. 32% felt that when they were at the beach in a bathing suit, and 31% were dissatisfied with how they looked when they were shopping for clothes. This is why I love grocery shopping. <laughs> Everything fits. It's just fine. 29% report being dissatisfied with how they look when trying on old clothes they haven't worn in a while. 14% don't like how they look when they compare themselves, surprise, surprise, to images of people they see on social media. Guys, the, the studies on social media and depression, those links have already been made. Okay? They know it already. It's so, your so, there's a direct correlation between your social media usage and the amount of depression and anxiety you feel. They're already out. Multiple countries have looked at this. If you want to be, feel happy about yourself, get off social media. 14%, or excuse me, 13% are dissatisfied with themselves when they're at the gym or workout classes. 11% are dissatisfied with themselves when they look at TV and movie actors and actresses. And 83% of people dissatisfied with how their bodies look are women. 86% are young adults between the ages of 18 to 30. So when I hear things that 99% of people down syndrome are happy with their lives, and I hear that 96% like how they looked, and I look at the general population, and we are nowhere near that. And then I read the studies, the Atlantic Magazine estimates 67% of Down syndrome babies are aborted in this country. You go to some other countries in the world, guys, and you're pushing 99%. Why are they being aborted? Because people determine, well, if you can't live like me, well, then you won't have a happy life. And we've decided what makes somebody happy or to have a good, healthy, fulfilling life. And so we say, well, you won't be able to live like me, so your life won't be good, you won't really be happy, and then you're going to be a lot of work on me, and that's not going to help me out, so they choose to abort them. And when I look at these studies, I think to myself, oh, my Lord, we've aborted the happy ones. We thought we knew. We became the arbitrators of moral rights and wrongs. We determine who can be happy. And look at this, guys, we got it wrong. They're the happy ones, and now we're left with us who are depressed, hate how we look, who are anxious, who are struggling and crawling through life. And these guys are loving everybody, and they're happy. This is why if you deconstruct and leave the pieces in shambles and don't know what you're reconstructing, this is what it will lead to. You will follow beliefs and views that you think you know what you're doing, only to find out years later, because once again, we can't see the future, so you really don't know if the decision you're making today is right, morally right or wrong. You see the future, and you see the studies, and you're like, oops. 
I want to finish on one last story with you all. It shouldn't surprise us that people doubt Jesus' credibility today. They did it in the Bible. His followers did. They've been doubting Jesus for thousands of years. It's not new. It's normal. You don't need to feel ashamed about it. But you need to use doubt and questioning as a platform to find answers. What you don't want to do is just say, "Mm, I don't know, and just live in the unbroken pieces. But I want to read you a short passage out of John chapter 20, verse 19. And Jesus has died, and he's risen, and he appears to his disciples. And I want to read you what happens when this encounter occurs. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he'd said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, "Uh uh-uh, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with him. Though Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. That word belief, that final word there, is the Greek word pistos, which is translated faith at other times in the New Testament. In other words, what Jesus is saying is stop doubting, Thomas, and have faith. But if you notice, what did Jesus do? Did Jesus say, you're an idiot. After everything you see me done, you're questioning Did Jesus humiliate him? Did he shame him? Did he call him names? Did he say, how could you? No, he said, you want evidence, Thomas, here, let me give it to you. Go ahead and put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand into my side. Go ahead, Thomas, I got you. I'm going to help you out here. And now that I've given you this evidence, now believe. Now have faith. When people say to me, Christian faith is blind, it's just believing in things that they know aren't true or just believe without evidence. I'm like, if Christianity is a faith without evidence, then Jesus got it wrong. Because he gave Thomas evidence and then told him to believe. Christianity's always had evidence. And this same Thomas, who we started out the morning reading John chapter 11, said, Let's go and die with Jesus, had his faith shaken. He was strong. He believed he was willing to die. And now he's saying, I don't believe. I want more evidence. And Jesus gives it to him. He doesn't shame him, but he helps him out. Several years ago, I had the pleasure of being able to go to India. And Christian tradition tells us that Thomas, about 20 years after this, went to India and started to preach the gospel there and started the Indian church there. That's why you'll see many Indians with the last name Thomas. And the Indian church will trace their lineage back to him. It is interesting that he ended up being martyred there. The man who thought going to Judea was going to be where he was going to die. Turns out it was Chennai. 
And in the in Chennai, they have what's called St. Thomas Cathedral Basilica. And so my friends brought me to this basilica, and I was like, great. I really didn't know much about it. And I went, and it's this beautiful museum and this beautiful, like, just different pictures and very just serene and holy kind of place. And you have to take your shoes off. It's a very classic Indian thing. When you go into certain holy places, you, you remove your sandals at the door. But this Thomas, who was so struck and overwhelmed by the evidence turns to his God and says to him, my Lord and my God, in response to the evidence given before him. The doubter no longer doubted. It was too convincing, and he chose to believe. And as I went to the particular church or cathedral, I went downstairs, and there was a room probably from this wall to this wall, not very big, and as I walked down, there was just a bunch of pews. And it looked like in the front was like a big glass, like rectangle kind of dome thing. I didn't really know what that was. And so I'm walking down the aisle closer and closer to try and see what I could see when I froze in my tracks. Because there were five words written on this glass tomb that had been uttered 2,000 years prior. That led a man who had once said, I will die for you, then say questioning, then doubting, and then believe, and totally transformed his life. And as I looked at that tomb, written on that tomb were five simple words, my Lord and my God. G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It is difficult, but we try it because we do believe in something. And we need to make sure whatever we believe in is accurate because it influences every thing we do in our lives. So don't just deconstruct and leave the pieces shattered. Put it back together with something. So my question is, no, is not to whom will you go. Rather, it's to what have you gone. Thank you, guys.